You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. The sixth annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland interdisciplinary conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2016. The conference was generously supported by an NUI Galway President's Award for Research Excellence to Professor Stephen Ellis, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Discipline of History at NUI Galway, and the Society for Renaissance Studies. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Professor John McCafferty from University College Dublin. His paper was entitled Recycling an Island's Past for a Global Catholicism. Irish Franciscans in the 17th century. I'm going to actually start with the centenary of the 1916 Rising, because why not? Because everything's about the centenary of the 1916 Rising. Um, The Irish Franciscans uh, have experienced some discomfort this year during the centenary of the Rising, because as you know, as far as clergy go in the Rising, it's all about Capuchins. And the Irish Franciscans are actually somewhat embarrassed by the fact that uh, they sat in Merchant's Quay and did nothing uh, during the Dublin insurrection in 1916. But one of the consequences, this this got me thinking, and it actually does connect up to my paper, believe it or not, um, this got me thinking uh, about their role in the Free State and the Early Republic, where the observant Franciscans move very close to... uh, figures like de Valera, Sean T. O'Kelly, and many members of the cabinet were in the Franciscan uh, sodality or third order in Merchant's Quay. And one of the consequences was that by the 1940s and 1950s, the Irish Franciscans, based on Michal O'Clerig and the Annals of the Four Masters, had essentially repositioned themselves as the very quintessence of Gaelic nation-building Ireland. And one of the consequences of this uh, very successful scholarly enterprise, which, which found its um, further expression in their own house of studies in uh, Dunwara in Kalini. Um, one of the consequences of this was that the Franciscans have actually deceived themselves about their own legacy. And what I want to do today is uh, talk about the, uh, the way in which those two things interact. The result is, is that large swathes of what the Franciscans actually did, the Irish Franciscans did in the 17th century, have been lost even to themselves, partly because of the positioning of texts like the Annals of the Four Masters and so on at the centre of their endeavour. So what I want to do today is talk about the other stuff they did, in fact about 90% of what they did that is not necessarily in Irish. Now one day in, in, in 1610... The English canonesses of St. Augustine in Louvain were troubled by an unexpected caller. And the man at the grill was a Spanish friar called Andres de Soto, the confessor to the Infanta Isabella. And he had unwelcome news for the nuns. They were going to lose the house, which they'd only got the year before. They were going to be chucked out because Isabella wanted to install a bunch of Carmelites in their house. Now, what's interesting about this, this encounter one winter morning is the translator between De Soto, speaking Spanish, and the English canonesses, speaking English, was a man called Father Hugh, guardian of the Irish friars. Now, the story had a happy ending for the English ladies because they 
Father Hugh went on to intercede with, the, with Isabella, the Archduchess, and they got to keep their house, and they remained on. Um, the nuns knew the Irish Franciscans very well, since the young children of the Ulster Earls, O'Donnell and O'Neill, had been placed in their care by the Irish observants a few years earlier. But Father Hugh is better known to us by his Latin and Gaelic names, Hugo Cavellus and Aeth MacAngle. He was born in Downpatrick in 1571, studied law in the Isle of Man, and acted as tutor to the Earl of Tyrone's son at Salamanca, and there he entered the Franciscans in 1603. And his 22-year mendicant career saw him act as chaplain to the Irish Tercio in Flanders, he was professor of theology in Louvain, in Rome, commissary in the French province of Saint-Denis, guardian of St. Anthony's, definitor general of the order, and for a couple of months preceding his death in 1626, Archbishop of Armagh. Now, MacAngle wrote in every register from Irish language hymns to devotional treatises on confession to editions of John Dunn Scotus, and he wrote an important work on the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin. And all these go together. It's, it is, in its way, a kind of seamless um, garment. Now, of course, his name, his, his, his playing with his own name, MacAngle, of course, links him up to the seraph of Laverna who imprinted the stigmata on, um, on Francis himself. Um, but his interesting ability to speak English is an indicator of the extent to which both formal and informal plantation in Ulster had affected the native population of the region. MacAngle's pride in his origins, his experience of English rule and settlement, his defence of Scotus doctrine and his dedication to demotic devotion, along with service to the order, was not unique, but characteristic of a sparkling group of Irish friars on the continent who, in 22 years, founded three major colleges uh, in Louvain, Rome, and the College of the Immaculate Conception in Prague. Now, one decade after the uh, importuning Isabella, MacAngle dedicated his edition of the Subtle Doctor's Commentaries on the Sentences to her, and the title page of the book claimed a common nativity for author and editor John Dunscotus and Hugo Cavellus Dunensis. Now, the fervent faith of the Irish friars in Scotus's Irishness is normally noted and dismissed as a fond imagining of a vain thing. And it was an imagining. <laughs> it wasn't Irish, to my great regret. But it was neither doting nor dreamy. It was a patriotic paratheology with serious intent. Making Scotus Irish released energies which bonded landscape <coughs> to learning, the past to the present, and the island to the world. MacAngle's 1620 construction of his subject as an Ulsterman is a tight weave of etym etymology and imagery, and it goes like this. Doon, down, is a district of Lacal, which he tra translates as Cantredus Luminis, or district of light. And from this base, St. Patrick brought the light of the gospel to the entire island. 17th century puns are not funny, and they're heavy-handed. <laughs> and then a further Franciscan uh, bishop of Down brought the light of martyrdom, Cornelius O'Devany, in 1613, to the same area. And St. Malachy, yet another bishop of Down, reformed the Irish church in the 11th century. And, of course, at Down, Patrick Bridget and Colum Killer, the three national patrons, are, are buried in the same soil. It is now, and it has always been, the fixed tradition of learned and unlearned people, he says, that Dunn's Scotus is from Down. So Patrick's place, the place of patrons, place of light, the nurse of saintly reformers and blessed martyrs, is also the fons et origo of John Dunn Scotus, Dr. Ordinus Seraphicus. Scotus's Irishness is no pleasant crotchet. The genius Loki 
of Down inserts him into a lineage beginning with the 5th century apostle whose latest flowering was a friar who had only been executed a few years earlier by the heretical authorities. Now in 1639, the uh, Isidore's edition uh, was published in, in uh, Lyon uh, of the uh, Scotus's opera Omnia by the Patres Hibernis Collegi Romani Sancti Isidori. Volume 1 features an engraving of the man himself, John Dunn Scotus, in his study wrapped. He's watched over by Maria Immaculata. And the shuttered window in the rear uh, uh, opens out here to a view of St. Isidore's, complete with probably two Irish recollects caught up in an erudite. This is actually an important image because the facade of the church was heavily damaged in an 18th century uh, earthquake in Rome. So actually, this is possibly the only representation of the original St. Isidore's. Now, this was a deluxe and costly edition, but there was an immense appetite for the edition. Within two years, it was unobtainable, and more than 120 folio works alone were written about this 1639 edition. So, here's Scotus's work in international demand, presented in what we might call an Irish dust jacket. Once the general chapter of the Franciscans of 1632-33 proclaimed Scotus as doctor of the order, the minister general wanted an edition, and he appointed Wadding, Waterford born, to do the edition, and he did what all Irish people did. He turned it in to an Irish jobs for the lads scenario. The entire team was Irish, apart from two consultant Spaniards that they brought in, and of the seven contributing editors, five were Irish. And readers of this box set were not only given a visual prompt of an Irish college at Rome, but were treated through the toponyms of the contributors to an informal gazetteer of the home island. Cork, Limerick, Waterford, Toom, Down, Clanmel, Armagh. So over a century, the Irish Franciscan houses at Louvain, Rome and Prague produced over 90 lectures in Scotus theology and hundreds and hundreds of dissertations on the thought and learning of uh, Scotus. But this wasn't just an academic exercise. The defences of these theses were um, occasions at which the, uh, the elite of Roman society, including on more than one occasion the reigning pope himself, attended this Irish expression of Scotism. Now, Decomo's uh, what we have here in, and, and my images here are from, uh, from the um, from the frescoes in, in Isidore's. It's the largest, to my knowledge, group portrait of 17th century Irish people anywhere in the world. And it's a hortus conclusus, so it's, it's in a casita of a garden. It's modelled on the Alan Maxima in Salamanca. And this is what I want to address now in the second half of my paper. It's a tribute by Wadding, who was educated in Salamanca, to his alma mater. But what's really interesting about this Irish infatuation with Scotus is they have an older medieval tradition that Scotus is Irish. But they know nothing about Scotus. They learn Scotus when they go to Spain. In other words, they find Scotus theology abroad. Even Morris O'Fihilly, the most uh, famous 15th century exponent of Scotism, an Irish native, is a Scotus in northern Italy. So the legend that Scotus is Irish is there, but the actual practice of Scotus theology, which you have to remember, is actually the dominant form of 17th century scholastic theology, more important than Thomism in this period, uh, is what they acquire 
and instantly colonise and instantly hibernicise. Wadding says, I have frequented three noblest universities of Spain, Coimbra, Salamanca and Alcala. In each I found chairs of Scotism and masters teaching Scotus uh, doctrine. So, just as exiled Gaelic aristocrats happily drew on the legendary history to present themselves as the northern Spaniards, the sons of Meal, um, the <coughs> Irish Franciscans give themselves a parallel origin legend by claiming that the Irish province was not founded through England, as it was, but it would have been founded directly by companions of St. Francis from Galicia. So, direct sailings from Galicia made both Ireland's nobles and made Ireland's friars. And that connection is important. Now what we see then is added to this is another strand of the project. And the other strand of the project, and I I won't bore you with all the details, it's it's a whole other paper and so on, is that the Irish friars then expand out their activities. Wadding produces the definitive edition of Francis's own writings, which remain the the go-to edition of Francis's writings till the 19th century. And Wadding and his nephew, Francis Harold, and then several generations of friars later, all Irish become the historiographer generals of the order. So what we have is a very self-conscious set of, they essentially, the Irish friars colonise the dominant theology of the order, they colonise the very history of the order, and they colonise the founder. And they become the scholarly editors of all of these things. Now, I suppose the thing that's always eluded us and and eluded me for a long time is how does this fit with what they did back in the Irish mission? So this seems all super duper international. They'd probably be on an ERC research grant if they were alive today. All very wonderful, functioning the European stage and all the rest. How does it actually fit back to what's happening? And this is what I want to posit is the connection between the two in the seven point something minutes I have left. Now, one thing that everybody from the 12th century onwards knew about Ireland was it had a physical entrance to purgatory. Lochter, Patrick's purgatory, um, it's a big subject, I've written about it elsewhere, but there are aspects of the Franciscan role in its rebirth as a place of mass pilgrimage that are worth um, uh, touching on. Defiantly large pilgrimages centred on purgatory took place deep in the zone of a supposedly Protestantizing plantation. And the friars' traditional deathbed specialists were ideally suited to take over the purgatory and revamp it. MacAngle had to say this about Patrick, to whom the purgatory had been granted in his Scahan. Many marks of ceaseless praying there are and signs of his ascetic piety and traces of his reparation at Lochderg, at Down, at Croch, at Saul, at Struel, and in many other places which would be too long to list here. So even though this northern province is disfigured by plantation, Scotus springs from a holy landscape, cleansed and sanctified by Patrick, itself a giant relic of contact. That's, uh, I'll come to that in a minute. It's one of the weirder outcroppings of Scotus theology. MacAngle discussed Patrick and his successor saints in the third section of the Scotland, which is on Lorganeve, or satisfaction. Satisfactio operis is the means by which purgatory is avoided after sacramental absolution has been granted. So MacAngle is writing the necessity and efficacy of works, central Catholic concern of course, into a sacralised landscape. So works, saints, purgatory all worked into and were part of the soil that made the whole island a confessional battleground. And this very, uh, this aligns of course with propaganda's view that Ireland was a key 
stage on which the eventual Catholic reconquest would take place. So effectively what you've got here is that barefoot lay people in Loch Derg were fighting with equal effect to overseas academics in this war of faith. Essentially, what we have is that the friars, and several of these guys, of course, are in Isidore's at one stage, and then they're working in Loch Derg at another stage. They're linking their central intellectual concern, their attempt to put Irishness and Scotus on a world stage, with what actually happens in Loch Derg with the pilgrimages. And in a nice touch, and in a typical Franciscan touch, Loch Derg was also a key place for fundraising for the Irish colleges on the continent, but that's, again, a whole, uh, whole other story. Now, I could also talk about, and again, I won't, is the way in which uh, the, 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 the hagiographical project of the friars feeds into this, but I think you can uh, get a sense of, of what's going on here. Um, I want to sort of try and pull a lot of this together by looking at something that's happening in the other part and perhaps the most theologically uh, challenging part of the whole project, which is the association of the Franciscans with the doctrine, well, it's, it doesn't get to be the doctrine, but with the, with the opinion, the pious opinion, as they called it, of the Immaculate uh, Conception. Now, we know Luke Wadding gets Patrick put into the general Roman calendar in 1632. Um, he had been in the general calendar of the Franciscan order since 1370. And what we see is the Franciscans now adopting Scotus as their doctor, in clearly in a push to put this allegedly Irish man to get him to be a doctor of the church. Donatus Mooney says, an Irish scholar would conclude that Scotus was a native of Ireland from the peculiar phrasing, I've put this in for Dovey, a peculiar phrasing of his Latin, which abounds in Irish idioms, as well as from his style, at once concise and comprehensive, which is also characteristic of that language. When another would say Peter and Paul, Socrates and Plato, he would say St. Patrick and St. Francis, as if these were his two patrons. Now, the Galician origin for the Irish province, which Mooney posited, worked very well since it eliminated, as I said, the historical chain of foundation by England. Yet England still loomed large in the thinking of the friars as they tried to make sense of their experiences in the 70 years following dissolution. The friars ended up by maintaining that Ireland was also insula franciscanorum. The friars flourished from the moment that they set foot on the, shore, they, on the shores of Ireland, they attracted more of the devotion people than any other order, so they claimed. They had more convents, more bishops, and more refusers of high office than any of the other regulars. They held first, and in a certain sense, only place in the affections of the nobility. As for Queen Elizabeth, the Franciscan order passed through that storm almost unscathed, they argue. And Donatus Mooney hints that they're steadily outpacing everybody else in the martyrdom stakes. The friars fate and the fate of Ireland's nobility are knotted together in a complex set of arguments which also links up you have to trust me on this also links up to the idea of Scotus's origins in County Down Franciscans then are the, the Irish religious are members of an order which as Luke Wadding puts put it stands or falls on its fidelity or infidelity to Scotus the doctor from Downpatrick the sense of unity between cradle country and adult life in the order didn't trap the Irish friars into an endless loop. The final, and I suppose the most ambitious part of the project, and the part that probably didn't work out very well, is uh, summed up by Wadding at the end of his um, giant history of the order, 16-volume work. 
I've now followed on paper the footsteps of my fellow religious who traversed nearly every country in Europe. I found that they filled the earth with the seed of sound doctrine. I then crossed the seas and after them to India, to the Orient and the new countries to the West. There also I have traced the good work they accomplished. Franciscan friars believed that the winged seraph of La Verna had foretold the evangelization of the Americas to Francis of Assisi. Such an outcome, when friars in the western shores of America would face out to their co-workers in the Philippines and Japan, such an outcome was freighted with eschatological possibilities. It would be foolish to ignore the strand of thinking, one which strained towards the end times. Preserving Ireland's place in the salvific Roman communion was the vocation of these men, and that's what they worked for on the insular mission and abroad. Recycling Ireland's past in a troubled present was was intended to guarantee a Catholic future. Energies released by departure from home, by discoveries about home abroad and the application of lessons learned abroad to home. These energies made the local universal and the universal local and they allowed Franciscan Ireland to take its place in an international cloud of witnesses. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 140 podcasts, from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.